Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Stephen Shepard. Stephen is the founding dean emeritus of Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. He served as a senior editor at Newsweek, the editor of the Saturday Review, and editor-in-chief of Businessweek. He's the author of Deadline and Disruption, My Turbulent Path from Print to Digital, which was published in 2012, and the recently released A Literary Journey to Jewish Identity, rereading Bellow, Roth, Malmud, Ozick, and other great Jewish writers. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks very much, Lisa. So full disclosure, um, I stole this book. Um, (laughs) uh, It came to the center, and I saw it, and I thought, okay, I just have to take that home. Um, It's it's really an interesting read, so I've been very excited about the opportunity to speak with you about it. Um, and I guess my first question for you is, can you let's just sort of preface this and talk a little bit about the Jewish American novel, which you refer to um, sort of as being the formative years in the 50s and 60s, um, which is kind of uh, where we where we begin this journey with you. Yes. Well, when I was uh, in college in the years uh, after uh, and I became a serious reader, I realized that a lot of the books I was reading were written by Jews. Uh, and I came to understand later on that I actually was living through a rather golden age for Jewish-American writers in the post-war era. And some of these writers were explicitly Jewish, like uh, Bernard Malamud and Philip Roth. Some of them were slyly so, like Saul Bellow. And some of them were not at all Jewish in their writing, like uh, J.D. Salinger or Norman Mailer. So I got to wondering uh, over the years, what does it mean to be a Jewish-American writer? Is there such a thing as a Jewish-American novel? Is there something particularly Jewish um, about uh, a book written by um, a Jew? Um, And so um, I just decided when I had a chance uh, four or five years ago when I stepped down as the dean, of the journalism school at the City University of New York, that I would go back and reread these books and see um, what meaning I can extract and try to remember what I felt the first time around and, you know, try to come to grips with what, what influence these books had on my own sense of Jewish identity. And that was the start of, uh, and that's why I wrote the book, um, uh, to, to um, update myself really on the writers and what they, and what they meant to my sense of Jew- Jewish identity. It's such an interesting approach because, and, and you just kind of alluded to this, I mean, I read a lot of these authors as well, and um, it was a long time between the original reading and going back to them. Yeah. And I realize you bring so much back to the rereading or just the reconsideration. I'm not sure I thought of them in the context of Jewish writers. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I think that um, there's a lot of, debate about uh, is there such a thing you know Saul Bellow these writers did not like to be identified as Jewish writers Um, Bellow said calling somebody a Jewish writer is like calling somebody an Eskimo cellist Uh, you know it's a funny Mm -hmm. line um, but Bellow was very very serious because he thought that calling somebody a Jewish writer was itself a form of discrimination a way of rendering their writing as parochial and lacking any universal um, appeal. Um, so he was very, very uh, concerned about that, as were the others. The only writer who didn't mind being called a Jewish writer was Cynthia Ozick, um, because she said, look, all genius is parochial. Uh, you know, Tolstoy wrote about 
a small fraction of French-speaking aristocrats in 19th century Russia and made great literature out of it. Um, and uh, and uh, Joyce wrote about Catholics in Dublin and made great literature. So all genius is parochial, and she was fond of quoting Isaac Bashevis Singer, who said, every writer needs an address. Um, so she said, you get universal meaning and authenticity out of parochial settings. Um, so she didn't have any problems with that at all. But the other writers just wanted to be called writers, that's all, who happened to be Jewish. They weren't denying their Judaism. They just didn't want to be referred to as Jewish, Jewish writers. And I think it is an ongoing question. I mean, how do we identify? But I think one thing that's unifying, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that each of these writers really lived as sort of the next generation. They were the generation, many of whom were born into um, a family that had immigrated. Many of them had Yiddish-speaking parents, and they were the ones who were assimilating. Yeah. And much of their work reflects what that that experience was like. Whether or not they wanted to broadcast it, they were working some working through some of that thematically. Yeah, there's no question about it. It's also no coincidence that this golden age of Jewish-American writers came after the Second World War with the decline of uh, anti-Semitism in America, in fact, almost the disappearance of it um, for, for many, many years after the Second World War, the, you know, the years that I grew up and started reading. And that's what made it possible for there to be a golden age for Jewish-American writers, because there was so little anti-Semitism. It didn't happen, you know, in the 20s and 30s, even though there was an immigrant literature by Jewish writers. But these were, as you say, these were writers who came of age. Their parents were the immigrants, and, and they grew up in a much more modern America. Um, Bellows' breakthrough book, uh, The Adventures of Orgy March, was 1953. Um, the Assistant by Bernard Malaman was 1957, and Philip Roth's uh, first book, Goodbye Columbus, was 1959. That's when it started, and I just don't think it could have happened uh, really much earlier. And... Let's two things again that you just touched on is um, one chapter you write about Arthur Miller and you write about death of a salesman, which I um, it was interesting. You talked about the fact that you had seen the New Yiddish Reps performance of it in Yiddish. It had once been done in the 1950s, which I was um, I was totally unaware of until I read it in your book. You had a similar reaction to a lot of people that I know um, who saw it and thought. You know, it was one of those kind of aha moments. It was meant to be written in Yiddish. It just it it felt that Lo, um, Willie Loman was so much that character. Can you speak a little bit about that and also something about Miller's ambivalence? <laughs> yeah, well, from the very moment it it was produced first on Broadway, there were people who thought that Willie Loman was a Jewish character, and Arthur Miller because he was wanted to make an everyman character. He didn't want to have any parochialism or religious uh, definition, he, and, and there is none. Uh, Willie Loman is ethnically anonymous in the play. But from the very beginning, uh, there are plenty of people who thought Willie Loman was a Jewish character, including Leslie Fiedler and later the playwright David Mamet and so on. Uh, and the first Yiddish production was in Argentina shortly, just a few months after the Broadway opening. So it was in the air from the very beginning. And Miller went to great lengths to deny that Willie Loman was Jewish. But over the years, uh, he dropped little hints that there was some resemblance to an uncle of his named Manny Newman. And 
Finally, 50, on the 50th anniversary of the opening, which is to say in 1999, Arthur Miller finally admitted that Willie Loman was a Jewish character. And, um, uh, and th- so the question is, why did he go to such lengths to deny it, uh, especially when it already had such universal appeal being shown all over the world, and including China? He didn't have to worry that it would be seen as a parochial. Um, and so, and it really reflected his own ambivalence about his own Judaism. Um, he uh, he he, has, he grew up uh, in in Manhattan, and his family moved to Brooklyn when his father, who was essentially illiterate, and ran a business in the garment district in New York City, um, went broke uh, during the Depression, and um, he uh, he just moved away from Judaism. He, family wasn't that religious at all, and he had three wives, including the ultimate Shiksa fantasy, I suppose, Marilyn Monroe, um, and none of the wives was Jewish, uh, and he didn't leave it, lead a Jewish life, and he just didn't want Willie Loman to be seen as Jewish, and it reflected, I think, his own ambivalence, because it went on for way too long, the denial of uh, the Jewish roots of Willie Loman, which he finally talked about, but it took 50 years after the play opened. So I think, I mean, you started this book, is it safe to say, as something of a personal exploration? Um, yes. Um, that, that's a premise. And I found it personally really um, interesting to read and, again, to reconsider these writers and the idea of Jewish identity many years forward. It's a really interesting way to reflect on Jewish identity, how did it play out for you in terms of where you originally started and what your thoughts were as you approached the book and when you finished it? Yeah. Well, I have to tell you something about my own Jewish background, which is I was born and raised in the Bronx and grew up in an Orthodox home. Um, my mother had a kosher kitchen. We had two sets of dishes. We changed the dishes yet again on Passover. We lit Shabbos candles, as we called them then, uh, every Friday night. My parents fasted on Yom Kippur. I was bar mitzvahed in an Orthodox synagogue. Um, but gradually, especially after my grandmother died, my mother's mother, uh, the Jewish practices were sort of relaxed a little bit. My mother was very concerned about becoming American, becoming modern. She was an immigrant. And um, uh, so to her, that meant becoming a little less orthodox. And that reflected in, 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 in my own feelings. And also, I grew up with a sense of Jews as victims. You know, there were, I knew there were schools that had quotas uh, on Jewish students. I knew that um, there were neighborhoods that Jews couldn't live. Uh, my uncle, my mother's brother, had gotten a master's degree from MIT in 1924. And in the family lore, it was said that he couldn't get a job for a long time because he was Jewish. And finally, the horror of the Holocaust. Uh, uh, and I remember seeing the pictures of the liberated concentration camps in uh, Life magazine uh, some years after the war. Um, and I just you know, didn't want to be a victim because I so identified Judaism with victimization. Uh, that assimilation for me became a form of disguise. Um, and it took a while for me to sort of overcome those feelings, and it really didn't happen until, uh, fully happened until uh, I married um, Lynn Povich and we raised our kids. She was much more observant Jew than I was, and um, 
we raised our kids as Jewish, and we lit candles on Friday nights, and I got more involved with the religion. And then I began to wonder, well, how did the literature, I was reading all these books growing up and in my 20s and 30s and so on, and I wanted to look at how the, you know, obviously society influences our literature, but it's also true that literature has some effect on all of us as individuals in that society. I just wanted to understand how that played out uh, in my own sense of Jewish identity, being raised uh, Orthodox and moving into, you know, largely a secular Jew, and to understand what role religion played in my life. So, it very this interest in literature dovetailed quite neatly. You're quite right with my own personal experience of growing up uh, as Jewish and my own path. Um, from orthodoxy to secularism to something a little more than that now. It, I, I think all these writers do provide a window, um, and whether you were sort of the bridge generation, if I may, um, who are contemporaries of these writers, or the next generation whose you know, parents were the contemporaries and you were reading it, it explains so much about Jewish culture without... Yeah, necessarily having to attach that awful, yeah, these were Jewish writers. But it's an aspect of a culture. It's an aspect of a, of a broader experience in America. Yes? Yes. There's no question. The thing, one of the things that's very interesting about these writers, with some exception, notably uh, Cynthia Ozick, um, the writers were, the characters they were creating were not religious Jews. The, these books rarely show Jews as religious practitioners. Uh, there are exceptions to that. They're in some Malam and some Ozick and other places. But in general, they were writing about secular Jews assimilating in the larger context of American society. And by focusing on secular Jews, I think that they sort of were saying this is an acceptable way to be Jewish, um, that you, you don't have to be religious to be Jewish, or there are degrees of religion, obviously, or religious observance. Um, and I think uh, I was predisposed to that point of view um, for the reasons I just said about my family, but um, I think that they essentially gave me permission or reinforced my um, desire to move into being a more secular Jew. If all the characters are secular Jews, then it seems to be they're giving me permission to be a secular Jew. I also think that they're giving us permission or they were giving permission to acknowledge and to talk about what some of those struggles were. How do, you, how do you belong and what are you belonging to? What are you denying in the belonging? You know, these were complicated questions and they really right. necessarily couldn't be answered by parents because you're, you're moving away from them and from that way of life and yet you're bringing aspects of it into your life. So I guess the short of that is it's all very complicated. <laughs> Yes, it is. Well, that's because there are many ways to be Jewish. Mm -hmm. And what was very interesting to me in the course of doing the research in 2013, the Pew Research Center came out with a big survey of Jews in America asking the question, you know, what does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to you to be Jewish? And the results were astounding because only 15 percent, that's one five percent, said that being Jewish was mainly a matter of, of, of the religion. And 62% said it was mainly a matter of tradition, heritage, culture, and Jewish values uh, rather than the religion itself. 
And when that question was probed, they said what it meant was Holocaust remembrance. It meant leading an ethical life. It meant pursuing social justice. Uh, it meant an emphasis on education. That's what it, and then I thought to myself, my goodness, I haven't excommunicated myself in the Jewish faith. I'm quite in the mainstream of American Jews who are essentially secular, have deep feeling about being Jewish, as I do, um, but downplay the religious aspects of it in favor of the values and heritage. Now, of course, that raises the long-term question is, can Judaism survive in the long term, particularly given the high rates of intermarriage, without its religious core? And I don't know the answer to that, um, but it's amazing to me that so many Jews in America essentially define themselves as secular. I hope this isn't a, a silly question to ask you, um, but how do you think uh, a younger generation of readers comes to this work with, in terms of insights and considerations? Um, well, I think, you know, it's interesting that there is a new generation of Jewish writers. So some people, particularly, you know, students of literature, are going to go back and read Bellow and Roth and Bozik and Isaac Beshevis Singer and so on. But a lot of the younger people are reading contemporary Jewish writers, um, like a Michael Chabon and Allegra Goodman and Dara Horn and Nicole Krauss and um, Jonathan Safran Foer and writers like that. There are a whole bunch of Jewish writers, and we don't think of them as Jewish writers in the way we thought of Bella Roth and Malamud. We just think of them as writers. I mean, it's sort of interesting that that's Saul Bellow's definition. He wanted himself and others to be thought of writers. Yes, we're Jewish, but we're writers were not really Jewish writers. Um, and I think it's more true today. Uh, I think he sort of lived to see the day when what he wanted kind of came true. We're aware that these writers are Jewish, but we don't think of them as Jewish writers the way we thought of Bellow and Roth and Malamud and the others. So, you know, I think it is different today. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how the, the literature written by Jews changes um, in this Trump and post-Trump world where there is a rise of anti-Semitism in the United States in a way that, you know, um, we didn't much experience uh, after the war. I mean, the, the, what happened in the war and the horror of the Holocaust was so terrible that it was shameful to be an anti-Semite after the war. And it kind of disappeared, or at least went underground. And so I grew up in, in the era of uh, feeling, you know, Jews could do anything. And have to worry about discrimination the way my parents' generation did. So it will now be interesting to see what happens now that we have a rise in anti-Semitism. It's, it's still relatively low, historically speaking, but it is a rise. And whether the literature written by these writers today will reflect uh, the new Jewish reality. It's, it's also, in, well, again, personally, it's interesting that we've been doing more here with you know, work in translation. So I'm beginning to be able to read um, work that was originally written in Yiddish, you know, even into the 1950s, into the 1980s, in the 1920s, etc. And to kind of consider these writers in that arc brings a whole other aspect to the conversation um, in terms of Jewish identity, I think. What was the most surprising insight revelation to you as you did this? Well, there were two. One concerns Bellow and one uh, Roth. Uh, the Bellow thing was on the rereading of him. Remember, he is the patriarch. He's, 
he's the first Jewish American writer to win a Nobel Prize in literature. Um, and I, when I went back and reread him, I yes, I, he created wonderful char- characters, idiosyncratic characters like Augie March and Herzog and so on. Um, and he was uh, the language was just um, marvelous. Those rich, cascading sentences, rich in metaphor and erudition and so on. I just came away thinking that he really wasn't a great narrative writer. He wasn't a great storyteller the way Singer was or Roth or Malamud. Um, he uh, he was weak on plot. You know, Augie March is a man without a narrative. It's a series of episodes, and it's a wonderful book in many ways. And so I found myself a little bit disappointed in the rereading, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because he, I, I'd never realized that he wasn't that great a storyteller, that he got by, not got by, he succeeded, uh, you know, with the language and the characters. Um, so that was a little disappointing. On the other hand, reading uh, Philip Roth in retrospect, you have to marvel at, he's one of the few writers who really got better with age. He started with Goodbye Columbus when he was 26 years old and finished more than 50 years later. And some of his best books were when he was written when he was in his 60s, like... Uh, American Pastoral, Human Stain, Sabbath Theater, and so on. And his last book, uh, Nemesis, very short, moving novel, he, he wrote when he was 77 years old. And I just thought, wow, what a career. It's not that you know he didn't write some books that were weaker than others. He did, all writers do. But just to have such a sustained career in which, generally speaking, he got better with age uh, was is a rarity among writers. Usually they do their best work when they're younger. And that was a revelation to me. I hadn't thought about it in that way. I read his later books and liked them, but I never thought, you know, that the sustained brilliance of his career, uh, and in the end, you know, he didn't get a Nobel Prize, which he richly deserved in my view. Um, And then, of course, he died. So um, those were the two big things. Roth elevated in my rereading and Bellow slightly diminished in the rereading. I think... Looking at Roth across a career, it's interesting to think that, if I may, it was as if he was living out all of the complexities of his life through the writing, and so he emerged on the other end feeling much more connected with who he was. Yeah, you know, it's, it, there's no question he was Jewish to the core, but he didn't believe in mm-hmm. religion, and, and, uh, and when he died... His funeral, he specified before he died that he didn't want any um, religious stuff at his funeral service. No Hebrew, no rabbi, no nothing. And obviously his wishes were granted. There were about 90 people at his funeral, which was at Bard College, because he had a good friend on the faculty there. And there was no Jewish ritual at all. But it's very interesting. At the end of the funeral service, a lot of the mourners took shovels and um, dumped dirt on his casket as it was being lowered into the grave, uh, which is, you know, mm-hmm. not formally a Jewish thing, but it's very, very traditional at Jewish funerals that uh, people do that. So it, it was as if his friends uh, wouldn't let him go with one final touch of Jewishness, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is kind of ironic. I mean, if he were alive to see it, he might have appreciated it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh but he, yeah, so he, he was a man who was Jewish, very Jewish to his core, but not the least bit religious and not interested in being religious. Well, it's great conversation, uh, really in, a really 
good read, um, and it prompts a lot. Uh, so thank you so much for the work. Again, for our listeners, the book is A Literary Journey to Jewish Identity, Rereading Bellow, Roth, Malmud, Ozick, and Other Great Jewish Writers. You can purchase a copy at shop.yiddishbookcenter.org as well as bookstores around the country, and I do urge everybody to read it. You will not be disappointed, and it it takes you backwards and forwards in terms of uh, wh where you stand with having read many of these authors, but fascinating. Um, thanks so much for taking time to visit with us today. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Okay. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well. Be healthy and tune in again soon.